on, uh, we'll probably uh, be finished with Undertale about the time it's my turn to uh, host a podcast again, or what? Yes, that's the plan. Cool. I have, uh, I have a, no, a topic for next week. Oh, you're correct. Because we did the, 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 the podcast I had been planning for for weeks in advance ahead of time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, Kratos has been added to Fortnite, and everyone is like, how far the gods have fallen. I mean, <laughs> Thor was already on there. Yeah, but different Thor. Not like the person who's supposed to be all like gritty and deadly doing uh, Fortnite dances and weird... Thor. Thor's aesthetic kind of fits into the whole Fortnite garishly yeah. colored... Horror. Because it's like the style of Thor they have in Fortnite, from what I've seen, is... It's like comic book. Thor. The comic book, yeah, very yeah. colorful version of it. Right. Whereas Kratos is yeah, kind of almost monochrome, Boy. except for the red mm-hmm. kind of face paint stuff. And yeah, I think he... Didn't, weren't the older God of War games a little flashier in terms of presentation or... A I bit. haven't played any of them or seen any of them. I have no I've idea. I've seen a little like, bit of the footage from... They're like hack and slash beat-em-ups more than anything. Mm-hmm. From what I see. Uh, whereas the newer one just kind of took a different uh, speed altogether mm-hmm. with the whole dad of boy thing. Mm-hmm. I would be interested in playing that I one would play God of War 4. I don't know if I'd bother with any of the other ones. I might try like an early one to see what it was about beforehand, like because mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to be like the same. Oh yeah, there's like a continuity going on. Yep, that'd be interesting. But then that would mean there had to be a PS4 to do it on, and I guess it'll probably be a while before one can get a hold of a affordable PS5 because scalpers be doing their thing. Scalpers apparently. be scalping. Mm-hmm. Scalpers be scalping. Mm-hmm. Uh, all sorts of hype for cyberpunk going around the interwebs these days. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it's because it releases like next weekend. Now. This th- this weekend. This weekend. Yes. So I believe the the physical copies are supposed to have started going out already as of the recording of this episode. Mm-hmm. Neat. The pre-orders that is. Um, I'm still not entirely sure what the game is. <laughs> It's. I mean, it's like a, a it's sci-fi RPG. future. It's like, it's like a Skyrim esque sort of RPG. It's kind of like Fallout, except in that sort of just very big open world um, RPG but instead style. Of desolate, instead of desolate wastelands or like large open country, it's a dense, populous city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So imagine if GTA was a futuristic rpg and you're there but with more complexity obviously with with more to the games just yes. just more um and also keanu reeves because yeah because keanu reeves because yeah. why not he, the, when he was cast for that role he was at the height of his power <laughs> you're you're assuming he hasn't reached he's reached his final form true but i mean like if you kind of look at it like on a like a data plot like, you know, that was sort of one of his peaks. It may not be the ultimate peak, but it was one of them. It was an instantaneous peak. Yeah. Right. Slightly higher than when he was, you know, doing stuff like The Matrix and rom-coms, that type of thing, in his younger days. Yeah, with with John Wick and the, the, the cyberpunk, you're beautiful meme. Uh, <laughs> you're breathtaking. No, breathtaking. That's what it is. I mean, my dog, just like little Keanu Reeves and big Keanu Reeves walking yeah. down the stage. Uh, yeah. He wasn't really a guy I was aware of. I was aware that he was in, like, Bill and Ted. And, and the Matrix. The Matrix and but he wasn't, like... I don't know. So, I hadn't really... Se- well, I think there's some... There some... was some of the very first memes in, like, the golden era of memes were of Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. Hmm. He I... was much more of a, a cult figure. Not an occult. Much more of right. a... Niche. Cult niche figure. Yes. yes. Yeah. 
Um, there's some there's some movies where I, where I'm like, oh, I had no idea Keanu Reeves was in that. It's kind of like when you buy a car, suddenly you see that car everywhere you go. It's like when you think about Keanu Reeves, it's like, oh, he keeps showing up in these different places in my life. <laughs> Wait, it's all Keanu Reeves? It always, always has, has been. been. <laughs> Wait, this is the way it always has been. <laughs> uh, Mandalorian season two is going pretty it's, good. I'm enjoying it. I would say it's getting interesting, but I mean, a whole season has been interesting. Have you? I have ma- not managed to okay. catch up on it. I was doing errands and watching content for today. Today, yeah, got it. Fair enough. I I didn't finish the content for today. Today, but we'll get that when we talk about the content. What I like, you could have watched the content for today. Today, while I was watching it today, I I, cu- I could have if I wasn't like finishing up my final writing project mm-hmm. that I should hopefully ever have to do ever in a non-work environment. Yeah. When are you? done with finals um most of my finals will be turned in by the end of this week next week oh, it's okay. just like makeup stuff and cool uh, getting my grades so then we can produce lots of content mm-hmm. if that maybe even a little bit of a holiday buffer if we have time um but and or and bumpers yes those are uh projected for the future the, of course we have been wanting to do them since day one right but we just haven't for done various it. reasons mostly me not feeling like it we just haven't done it but it is going to be a concerted effort to sort of elevate the production quality as time goes on i don't know if uh riley was in in the room when i made the joke but after we get our bumpers recorded it would be funny if we did an episode on the Pixar animated film Cars and titled the episode <laughs> Bumper, Bumper cars. cars. Like the whole point of the episode, it doesn't really have much to do with cars, but we just we just have bumpers. And just play all of our bumpers separately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are the bumpers, guys. Get sick of them before we use them. Yeah. It's it's funny with like the podcasts I listen to that have bumpers and the hosts are like, uh, these these are controversial. Some people like it. Some people hate it. I was like, there are only those who love them. <laughs> what are you talking about? There are only those who love them and those who do not love the podcast. Those who are tru- <laughs> truly lost. <laughs> From my point of view, I don't love the, the bumpers. <laughs> then you are lost. Then you are truly lost. Um, uh. From my point of view, Google Maps is wrong. <laughs> And you are truly lost. <laughs> there was a time when online maps weren't all that trustworthy. I mean, if he, if if Google is someday burned to the ground through antitrust stuff, at least they provided something useful to humanity in Google Maps. Like, actually, practically everyday useful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their search engine and all that stuff. So, I mean, there's, you know, some some stuff there but i don't it what it's weird how they removed don't be evil as their motto it's like why of all the mottos would you get rid of that one that that that's a concerning mo- like motto like just the optics of that is like why would you move away from the the op no i think the optics is the only reason they did it because it implies that there exists some definite evil that you cannot be hmm. and, and, and that's the whole thing and, and it's based that they're in bucking against. So that makes yeah. Sense. The Sodom and Gomorrah of our time. San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> we were watching, um, rewatching Avengers Endgame this week. I, I hadn't seen it since we watched it in theaters back in 2019 for whatever reason. But it was like. It in theaters in 2018. No, no, 19. 19. It was spring 19. Oh, you said in Endgame, not Infinity Endgame, War. yeah. Endgame yeah. was 19. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was funny when, like, Scott Lang wakes up, or it comes out of the van in San Francisco and everything's all dilapidated. I was like, huh, that's probably the... This is, like, yes, they totally abnormally messed up at San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> the very much abnormal condition of San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> totally contrary to what it is most of the time. I I would love to hear Monsignor speak his mind on that whole situation being a San Francisco native himself indeed although I mean he doesn't like 
actively lived there for a very long for a very time. long time. But he was there long enough to tell lots of cool stories. Of of the two priests working at our Newman Center, I don't think I would have pegged uh, Monsignor as being the one from California. I mean, you wouldn't initially think that, but then, like, as you get to know him better, he's, like, there's, like, oh, yeah, he's from California. Right. Well, you very least recognize he's not from around here. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, yes. There are good people from California, but, the, but all the good people are leaving. So, I haven't heard of any reports of people turning around and turning into pillars of salt, but I'm sure that'll... <laughs> Like, if I was from California, that you, would definitely be You're me. already salt, man. Yeah. No, I would <laughs> you're just, a salt of the earth kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I stay in one place too long, nothing you're grows. No. Which is really ironic because I'm a plant. <laughs> <laughs> They're just layers to your eyes. I, I was bit by a radioactive plant so that <laughs> I can't kill myself <laughs> from saline poisoning <laughs> by a radioactive Venus flytrap. That's like the only plant that can properly bite you. Yeah, and like not really bite. Most plants, their bark is worse than their bite. Yeah, <laughs> due to the lack of bite, <laughs> but overabundance of bark. Yes, <laughs> it's the frequency that counts. <sighs> well, speaking of frequency, we try to upload once a week. We're the Palladian Papists. I'm James. I'm Nathan. And I'm Riley. And also speaking of frequency, we're talking about a World War One type thing again this week. I mean, Wonder Woman is only, you know, the first movie is in World War One, but she's not a uniquely World War One character. Right. We are talking about nineteen seventeen, the movie. Mm-hmm. Um try to remember it came out last year, didn't it? I think late last year. Late yeah. last year. <laughs> oh yeah, we we still have it open on the T V. 2019. 2019 I remember yeah. listening to an episode of the Sub Beacon about it, like uh, before things shut down. So, like mm. maybe December. Sure. I want to say it was late last year. Like I was thinking about going to it, like after I graduated, I think, but I didn't yeah, get around I, to I it. I had heard you mention it and talk about it occasionally, but mm. like that's as far. If as I, I wasn't was broke, I would have probably gone to a movie to celebrate. But. Um, Yes, so the film 1917, as the name would imply, takes place during the First World War. Uh, what year? Um, I want to uh, say... Gee, I, I can't quite remember. I can't quite place the year. I'd okay, put okay. It somewhere it between been? 1900 and 1984. You know, that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> no lies detected. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we open up with uh, two soldiers kind of resting on a warm spring day yes so um corporal uh, lance corporal cofield schofield and lance corporal blake are summoned to the sort of headquarters station um to do a task he's like hey corporal blake pick a buddy we got a job for you guys to do like okay whatever it's some chore or whatever they want us to or errand they want us to run let's go see what it is and so they're sort of Making small talk as they uh, um, are making their way through the trenches into to the headquarters, which um, this film is shot a lot like. So if you if you guys have ever seen the movie Gravity, where like the opening sequence for that movie is all filmed to look like it's one shot, um, but this nearly the entire movie is filmed to, to look this way. I mean, there's some tricks and hidden cuts that they use, but it it's very it's pretty seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, we follow them as they make their way through the tr- trenches and it gives us kind of a cross section of what it was like to be in the trenches during world war one as an English soldier. Um, so they're, they're like kind of wondering what, what's going on. Um, and then they go see the general who's like, so corporal Blake, you have a blo- uh, brother, Lieutenant Blake, Blake, who's in this other unit down the way, um, eight miles away, I believe it was, or something like that. Um, the Germans have retreated, but they've set up a new line and they're trying to bait this unit into attacking and being ambushed. So all those guys are going to die pretty much unless you go warn them. Um, and the Germans, as they retreated, cut all of the phone lines so they couldn't just reach them that way. So they had to send them as runners. Um, so they give them some equipment and a little extra food and supplies. And they're like, all right, get on over there. 
And so they make their way to the front line and all their comrades are like, you guys are nuts. Like as far as they, as far as they can tell, the Germans are still in their other position. Now, to those who might not be familiar with the way war was fought in World War I, um, the um, opposing sides would basically dig trenches like a mile apart from each other in lines and would set up all sorts of traps and barbed wire and machine gun nests and things like that in the space between called no man's land because if you went through there, you're gonna basically going to die. And so they would basically, every once in a while, send troops across to try to take the other person's trench, and it was a very casualty-heavy way of fighting war. And so the uh, soldiers, knowing the dangers of no man's land, um, are very uh, nervous about going over the top, as they call it. Um, but they're assured by the commanders, like, the, the Germans have pulled back, you should have a straight shot. But, um, and they make their way across no man's land and there's a lot of tense moments and a lot of, um, they come across like bodies that are decaying and like people who died in grotesque ways and traps and different obstacles to navigate rats everywhere, just all the horrors of war. And it's a very like gloomy, um, tense situation because, you know, there's danger around every corner basically. Um, insofar as there are corners yeah right (laughs) it's yeah that's the other thing too is there's space virtually no cover if they were to be shot at um so they managed to make their way safely more or less to the german line which they found out as they were told that the germans had indeed left and burned everything they that they couldn't bring with them um and so as they start investigating and looking for ways to get through there to try to get to the, you know, to the other unit. Um, they start investigating these tunnels and a rat accidentally sets off a trap, a trip wire, and they nearly get buried. So Blake manages to pull Schofield from the a big pile of rubble, big pile of rubble and basically save his life. Um, <clears throat> and as they, as they're making their way through the, once they get past the German line, it get it breaks into more normal looking, I want to say French countryside. And so if, you know, in this area, you would hardly be able to tell there's a war because there's still like farmhouses, which are a little shelled out, but there's farmhouses with like a cow that's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a casual are, bucket of milk sitting there on the some, lawn. Somebody had just recently been there. Um, but uh, yeah, they... And so as they're walking along, they're starting to learn a little more about each other. Um, we learned that, well, Blake is sort of a younger guy, hasn't been around as long. But uh, we find out that <clears throat> Schofield had been in, present at and even decorated for his bravery at the Battle of the Somme, which is one of the bloodiest battles of already incredibly bloody World uh, First World War. And so he learned that, like Blake asks him, where his medal's at because he knew he'd been decorated. He's like, I traded it away with a French officer for, it was like coffee or something. He's like, I think you said a bottle of wine. A bottle of wine, yeah. He's like, why would you do that? I don't know, it's just a piece of tin. He's like, yeah, but. It's got a ribbon on it too. (laughs) Yeah, it's got a ribbon on it too. You know, it symbolizes bravery and, you know, honorable, um, you know, honorable discharge of duty and whatnot. And the soldier, and Schofield's like, yeah, it doesn't, basically, I survived. Yeah, I survived. I, I, I was I was celebrated for surviving. Schofield's yeah. kind of a downer. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of is. He he's very jaded by the war, and he's kind of mad at Blake for dragging him into this incredibly stressful and dangerous mission. Despite he's like, I I didn't. <laughs> right. It's like, hey, I thought they were just going to send us to take out the trash. Like, I didn't know that this was going to be a whole thing. Um, whereas Blake is a bit more of a, a chipper, go get him kind mm-hmm. of lad making all sorts of comment like they go through a cherry orchard with the blossoms and things and he's picking out like the different uh, varieties and different things like that and also his you know he's very motivated to try to get there as quickly as possible because his brother you know his his life is in danger in pretty immediate danger i mean even for wartime um and so while they're in this farmstead they kind of pause for a little bit 
um, before they move on, and they notice there is like a biplane battle going on overhead, and one plane, you know, crashes nearby them, and the plane lights on fire, and the, but the pilot's still alive, so they pull the pilot out of the wreckage and try to help him out. And when Schofield tries to go for some water from the pumps, you know, to try to like treat this pilot who's a German pilot, he turns around and the pilot is stabbing his buddy. Um, so they kill the pilot and then because, you know, he was mortally wounded, basically holds Blake as he bleeds out and tries to comfort him and promises him that he'll, you know, get to his brother, write his mom, you know, and complete the mission. Um, so he dies, and <clears throat> just after this, another group of soldiers, British soldiers, comes through, the, and they're like, yeah, "Sorry about your, sorry about your friend." Yeah, and uh, they give him a lift in their trucks, part of the way to where he needs to go, because they're also going that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but a bridge got. Like, yeah. What's that? I was just going to say, until they got to a bridge that was uh, knocked destroyed. out. <clears throat> yeah. And so he's like, well, I can't afford to, to lose time going around to the next. Because the battle is supposed to be basically right away in the morning and I have to get there before then. And it's getting later in the day. So he crosses the bridge under sniper fire um, to the other side of the river so he can make his way through the town to, you know, to where the friendly unit is. Um, and so he gets into a battle with the sniper and uh, sneaks into the house where the <clears throat> sniper is hiding. And they both shoot each other at the same time. Um, the uh, German soldier hits him on the helmet and doesn't kill him, but knocks him backwards and he hits his head and gets knocked out because he falls down a flight of stairs. And he wakes up sometime in the middle of the night, bleeding from the head and stuff, and sort of wanders his way through this town in pitch dark, filled with hostile soldiers. And... Uh, through a couple of harrowing experiences, he ends up um, in this house where this French woman is hiding with a baby um, that she's taking care of. She doesn't know who the parents are, but she's taking care of her. Um, and so she sort of treats his wounds a little bit and uh, helps him figure out where he's supposed to go. Because mm-hmm. he speaks broken French and she speaks broken English. And so they manage to communicate a little bit like she gives him directions. Um and uh, he sort of has sort of a it's sort of a pause and like all the tenseness like going on, and he's he he has a chance to sort of remember home a little bit because as he has a family of his own back home that um, he had mentioned to Blake earlier how much he hated going home because leaving to go back to the war and knowing you could never may never see them again was mm-hmm. too much. Um, so he. But then he has to press on, even though it's pretty dangerous, and the sun's coming up, so the soldiers might see him. So he runs through the town, being chased by the German soldiers, and jumps into the river um, to escape, and winds up um, on the shoreline near where he needs to be. Um, he's exhausted and stuff, but then he sort of saw, hears like softly like singing, somebody singing over the hill through the woods. So he goes through the woods and finds the unit he's looking for and sort of pauses, exhausted, and just listen. Like, all these soldiers are kind of waiting to go into battle, but they're listening to this one guy sing a really kind of haunting um, sort of not not quite a dirge, but it's like a very mournful, longing kind of a song, kind of like a, I'm a poor wayfaring stranger. Um, and so after that's done, they're like, hey, buddy, uh, Where'd you come from? He's, you know, all soaking wet from the river. He has barely any of his equipment left. They know he's not from their unit because he's got different epaulets. Mm-hmm. And this is like already well through the morning. So he thought he had already missed the uh, the whole unit. The whole he unit they'd already being left. sent into battle onto the ambush. And he, uh, and they're like, hey, we're from, um, I can't remember the name of the unit, but we're from the unit. And he's like, oh, that's the unit I'm looking for. Like, where's your commander? It's like, wait, why haven't you guys already gone into battle? It's like, we're the we're the second wave. We haven't gone yet. And so he knows, like, oh, crap, there's still time. I got to hurry. And so he's making his way through the trenches to find the commanding officer to give him the orders from the general to stop the attack. And the first wave starts going over, and he, so he basically has to book it, like, through the open battlefield, which is, like, the big iconic shot of the movie where... 
he's running and there's explosions and people charging by him trying to rush to save as many lives as he can by delivering the message. So he manages to get into the the colonel's headquarters. He was like, you know, he, uh, he's kind of gung-ho. Well, not gung-ho, but he's like very determined to win what he sees as an easy victory. And the Germans to him are retreating, even though it's a trap and he doesn't know it. Um, I think he's also more like, you know, I don't care if it's a trap. We've come this far and pulling my troops back now is just going to make them all die anyway. Right. So we may as well fight for something instead of die for nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not like he's just being a total idiot about it. Like he knows his way around battle. He does his duty and calls off the attack, but then he's like, you know. They'll just call me back next week and say, go in at dawn. Mm Mm-hmm. None of this matters. Yep. This, the way this war is being fought is totally a waste of human life. And the only way one side's going to win is if they're the last man standing, basically. Mm. Which was sort of the nature of that war. Um, so he calls off the attack and manages to find Blake's brother and give him his dog tags and like a his ring. ring that he had. Um, and offer his condolences. And uh, after after that... And sort of like trying to comfort him a little bit. He finds a tree in a field, which mirrors like the opening shot of the movie, basically, where he's leaning up against a tree resting. And so to me, I guess when I and like it, he looks at pictures of his family and then it fades to black. And that's the movie. Um, what I what I saw that when I initially as is when I initially watched the movie is like the fact that the movie ends as it began kind of shows how just every every day there's just a new you're just facing death again in some other way like for those soldiers like life had very little you know you're you, like there was very little chance you were going to make it home alive in those circumstances and so like every new every day is just the same old story and uh another thing that reinforces that is like they're going through the, their own units camp at the beginning of the movie is like they kind of talk to some of their comrades who are just kind of like depressed or trying to find a few moments rest or something like that but they're they're just totally cynical like all right well go do your thing but you're probably gonna die i hope you know that like the one sergeant or whatever is like hey if the germans manage to get you throw your flare gun back we need one we need one yeah i kind of hate it when the germans get them (laughs) just kind of like well you're probably gonna die but in case that happens at least give me my flare gun back because those are expensive. We don't got many of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's there's not a terrible lot of complexity to 1917 as far as the plot goes. I think, yeah, the interesting thing about the movie isn't the complexity of the plot. It's actually the, the simplicity of everything. Cause, mm-hmm. Because you literally follow the day a day in the life of two world war one soldiers mm-hmm. well the day a full day for one and a half day for another yeah but either way both the days end yeah um it's really like half a day for one and one and a half for another mm-hmm. right blake but, doesn't survive the first day mm-hmm. by any means and it's it's interesting too because like uh, Schofield is sort of jaded by the war like he's, he's already seen a bunch and this young kid who's barely in the war at all is the one who dies and he's still there mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of like right as they're about to go over the wall of the trench um, Schofield's like age before beauty he's like if someone's getting their head blown off poking it up it's gonna be me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like sort of illustrating how he's like you know become so it just doesn't care anymore almost Mm -hmm. yeah like the only thing keeping him going is knowing his family's still at home um otherwise he would basically and the fact that he has a duty to blake yeah despite really really not wanting to Mm -hmm. he's kind of signed up for this he's like well it's we made it across no man's land it's too late to go back now basically have to do this but then once blake is killed he's like okay yeah i have a like you said a duty to fulfill but it's kind of similar to the way um, Dunkirk was made where mm-hmm. um, very not very much dialogue although in this movie there's a bit more dialogue done in um, Dunkirk but it's very much 
atmospheric and tension is how the what drives the movie right you get a a cross section of what it felt like to be in that scenario you don't Mm -hmm. get like some some grand view of the war as a whole and the politics and the big stuff it's like two guys just trying to not get blowed up as they go to from one point to point b trudge through the mud the blood and the horror and and you yeah it shows with very little restraint really Mm -hmm. uh just kind of how casually awful things were. Mm-hmm. There's just, yeah, like how <laughs> the guys like, eh, don't go through that, don't go through that crater. It's literally full of dead bodies. You don't want to get stuck in that. Just like, 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 as death has become so normalized to these guys that they barely even think about it anymore. And and it's it's kind of yeah, it's kind of just kind of atrocious, grotesque, like horrors of war kind, but. It's not horrifying to the main characters. Mm-hmm. These horrors are part of their daily life at this point. Yeah, they've become, what's the word I'm looking for? They've become sort of um, desensitized, yeah. like dramatically. I've become so numb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like dramatically like desensitized to the point where like, you know, these awful things just are, yeah, like you said. Just so so while the, the audience member may be disturbed and uncomfortable by the things the camera's casually panning by this is just one one day for these although guys. a little grossed out are just kind of continuing like it's every yeah, day they go through all sorts of hell just to accomplish their duty and one of the problems with world war one was like just the general incompetence of the leaders who fought it or the leaders of the soldiers who fought it because, like we mentioned in the last week's episode, World War One was a time when a lot of new technologies and ways to kill people had been developed, <clears throat> but they were still using a lot of tactics that were outdated that just led to egregious loss of life and very little <clears throat> gain either way. The war was a glor- <clears throat> glorified stalemate for the majority of like the four years or so it was fought. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just led to a lot of loss of life. And from... Some of the documentaries and different things I've seen, like the people fighting it, like it wasn't like in World War Two where it was like black and white, sort of like you know our it side. It was pretty clear who was the good guy and who was the bad guy in World mm-hmm. War Two. In World War One, these were just people fighting for the ambitions of their political leaders. Mm-hmm. Like most of the guys were like, yeah, like would just as soon fight alongside the enemy as fight against them, you know. Um, but yeah. That's 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 the gist of uh, 1917. So we're 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 gonna you know talk about it and give like some of the transcendental analysis. But I would definitely recommend watching it to truly experience the movie. Right. It's like we we told you the whole story, and it's not like spoilers are. No. I mean, I I only saw half the film, so the spoilers don't really deter me. From he had to go to bed to not because he half. didn't find it interesting. No, because it was nine o'clock and I had work the next morning at five forty. Mm-hmm. Like I usually do. He's a responsible, responsible boy. I I left after the first and pretty much only cut in the film. Yeah, where he blacks well, out. Only like real like cut. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that when we get to the presentation part. But so yeah, um, so it's it's a bit it's a kind of a somber movie. Mm-hmm. Um, not really one you you know watch eat popcorn for like the heart-stopping action or anything like that there is action but it's it's not it's not an entertaining movie that's not the point it's more of a almost meditative kind of movie i guess on yeah like the fallenness of man almost just how bad things can get Mm -hmm. um but that being said like what are some things that we liked about the movie I was, I I really liked like how it was all one panning shot for the most yeah. part. I thought it was interesting because it was a thing that I was conscious of the whole time. It didn't take me out of it. Like I knew this was one of the selling points of the movie going right. into it. And so it, but knowing that they it was created to all look like one sing- singular shot, mm-hmm. they man still managed to create some interesting angles mm-hmm. in like the camera work and had it been any other movie the angle that particular camera angle would have been fairly normal and mm-hmm. kind of ho-hum 
But the fact that you got to that point, like, when they were going across No Man's Land, there was this, like, pond or, like, this puddle of water that they were skirting around the edge of. Yeah. But the camera took a path directly over the water and mm-hmm. followed them from, like, a distance before meeting back up with them and going more over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And so that pan going from the land to the water to back up, back near them was, like, a cool little just you're, you're floating around watching from this perspective it was like yeah so getting from point cinematography a to point through C. movement as opposed to yeah. like shots and and, and cuts, cuts yeah. yeah but it also allowed for this real like physical closeness to the characters as mm-hmm. you're going through the trenches you're like unco- the camera is uncomfortably like awkwardly placed over their shoulders and mm-hmm. peeking around corners and you don't see what they don't see and mm-hmm. when they're going through the tunnels it'll hesitate before they go around the corner and see that nothing's there but you're mm-hmm. still tensed up because you so, don't know what's around the corner anymore than they do right and so i think the, that the camera the seamlessness of the camera not was not only just a really neat creative choice it really tied itself into the experience of walking with these soldiers mm-hmm. in their shoes as it as it were yeah yeah, that was definitely something I liked. And then I'm 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 a sucker for realism in historical movies, that type of thing. It's like one thing I noticed they did with uh and maybe this goes into the beauty aspect of it in terms of execution, but the 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 use of color and scenery because the colors, the color palette of when they're like in the trenches or in no man's land or something is like very grays, blacks, browns, Brown. like very bleak sort of drab you know to reflect sort of the just the guts and the in fact it only gets like grittier and darker as they go through no man's land and mm-hmm. toward the german camp mm-hmm. and in the german camp it's all like gray and cold and empty because yeah and they, like all like there's at like everything's like kind of scorched because they burnt the place down before they retreated um but uh, once they get past the lines and into the countryside, it's sort of it's a weird juxtaposition where things are like you kind of get to feel things are a little more peaceful. It's springtime. It looks like there's cherry blossoms and there's grass and cows and different so things. In that little moment of uh, of the two guys having a conversation and getting to know each other, that little reprieve, there's a little more color. There's a little breath of fresh air. Mm hmm. And then, as well as like at the beginning of the movie, where they're resting, right. like in a gra- in a grassy field, and then they so go like the into moments the... of re- rest juxtaposed with the moments of tension mm-hmm. or of like fear. It's like yeah, yeah. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. And then like like the moments of sunshine and the moments of like cloudiness and overcast are like also like follow those same yeah. Um, follow those that that same pattern it's almost like it's like environmental storytelling yeah like it's like the atmosphere of the story is Mm -hmm. being set by the environment they're in but it also like it forwards the story telling in a way i don't know Mm -hmm. i may have repeated myself there but yeah you know what i mean and and sort of like the transition to where he like makes his way out of the river which is full of bodies that have floated down the river um like when he goes into that forest it's sort of a halfway in between point because there's these guys who are resting there before they go into battle. So you have the green, the wind in the trees and you know, these guys resting. Um, and the one soldier is singing that song, um, which I kind of, I'm probably going to pull up the lyrics cause I, I think it's, um, I listened to the song before I watched the movie. Um, while while i'm looking this up riley what did you like about the or what what struck you about the movie um i think one of the things that i found the most interesting was the way that schofield kind of took up the personality of blake after he died Mm -hmm. schofield was a very kind of different guy than blake at the start mm-hmm. but you know he sort of has this moment of personal recognition of what this war what this mission meant to blake mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. this you know he had so much personal invested into it mm-hmm. 
so he he kind of had this moment of realization like you know as gross and disgusting and just awful this war is this is meaningful what i'm doing here is gonna save 1600 lives Mm -hmm. if i get there you know i have the ability to make meaning out of this Mm-hmm. even though it seems so meaningless. Yeah, because it, like in the grand scheme of the war, it may you know maybe mean, seem meaningless, but at least this small part he plays is meaningful and right. he, impactful. He learned from Blake the, the personal investment, that there's a personal... He, he, the value he, in the he, little things. He made things. it personal. Yeah. He, he, he gave him a person to save. And the, and the value in the little things too, because... Yeah. Like, you know, like the guy's like, yeah, my mom had a, worked in like a cherry orchard or something like that. So he's going through all the varieties. Like, I don't, Schofield's like, I don't know. They look the same to me. But it's sort of that little di- bit of dialogue sort of reveals like kind of their difference of attitude before right. Schofield has this change of heart or as it were. Because he doesn't see what's, what's the point in telling, a, telling apart different cherries. You can't um, save everybody. But he's like, they taste different. I think he says something to that effect. Which now that I think about it, it's kind of like, I can't remember the exact verse, but like, you shall know them by their fruits. So like, even though it might seem meaningless by the fruit of your actions, you know, like saving lives, things are used, things are worthwhile. Right. It may, he, he may not have felt like he, he, he contributed much because he can't save everybody, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have to save everybody if he can save everybody he can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Even if they are sent the next day to go die again, at least he did his. He was able to save them for one more day. Um, so yeah, I've got the the lyrics for yeah, Wayfaring Stranger, um, okay. which is not by not the Johnny Cash version. Oh wait, no, it, hold on, it is. It's probably the same song. It's just yeah, he's done. It might be a folk song that Johnny Cash did, but then I mean, is it the I'm only going over Jordan? Um, yep. That's uh, Andrew plays that. Oh, okay. As in your brother-in-law. Yes. Um. So yeah, the lyrics are. I'm not gonna read through all of it, but it like the themes of the song, the motifs of the song, which is basically you're going through the valley of the shadow of death is the theme of this song. And then you're going home mm-hmm. through the valley. Of which <laughs> you're going home, home like heaven, home. I'm going home to see my brother. I'm only going over home. Yeah, going to see my father and all my loved ones who've gone on. Um, mm-hmm. Which is sort of, which is sort of reflective of like the themes and motifs of the movie, where like these guys are going through the valley of the shadow of death, but then ultimately like they're hoping not only to just go home, but even if they die, they're going to their eternal so, rest, which is their escape from this world of woe, as the song says. So yeah, that's a very thematically fitting song mm. for this film. Yeah, because right at the beginning we talk about going home and getting letters from home and mm-hmm. stuff. But then that sort of going home takes on a new meaning throughout the film, right? Because it starts out with uh, Schofield, mm-hmm. Schofield, he hating the idea of going home. Yeah, he's going to go back he, the next day. Yep, like yeah, he, he couldn't. Like, he just couldn't say goodbye to his family because it hurt too much. Because mm-hmm. he knew they may never see him again. Um, but, yeah. Good stuff. Um, so, I guess with that, we can get into our uh, transcendental, transcendental analysis. Transcendental analysis. Da, 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 da. Truth. What, as we, what can we as Catholics, you know, what sort of truth can we glean from this movie? War sucks. Yeah, war is yeah. hell on earth. War sucks, but you can't lose yourself in it, mm-hmm. right? There's there's a way to maintain humanity even in darkness. Yeah, this movie is like a sort of triumph of the human spirit kind of a movie, but in like not nearly. I mean, it's dramatic, but not like in the sort of theatrically dramatic. Like it's sort of a triumph in a very ordinary human way. You know, you're just trying to survive and do your duty doggedly through, like, bleak and deadly circumstances. Mm-hmm. But, like, that, even, like, the little things, you know. Taking joy in the little moments of reprieve. Mm-hmm. 
with the people that are alive that you can save. Yeah. Like just this one guy delivering a message um, saves like 1,600 lives like that. Well, kind of a thing. bit less. A bit less. Yeah. A few, several hundred at least. Yeah. Because, yeah, he didn't manage to get there to stop the attack entirely, but at least he prevents, you know, the next few waves from having to charge into battle and get killed. So, um, what else? I guess, I don't know. There's, it's really difficult from a historical standpoint to really truly understand what impact the First World War had on that entire generation because we'll never know the true extent of it well it turned around and became world war ii pretty quick. right there's that, that I mean, geopolitically like right that but then these guys the people who did survive when they came home they were known as the lost generation because even though like they came they, they survived the war and came home that you know they were just so racked with ptsd and different things and like they just had a very difficult time like reintegrating themselves back into society and so they and they're all like quite young and like a lot of people who died in world war one lied about their ages like teenagers to get into the army um and so died before they even got to their 20s so a lot of these people's just just coming of age or you know were you know basically never got to live a full life mm-hmm. and so just the impact of one human life can can have on an entire generation like just imagine you know, hundreds of thousands, like, you know, the best and brightest, more or less. Um, so I guess that's one reality is like, we'll never really truly know. I mean, there, there are we, things we, we may someday, but we are, in, in our lifetimes, we probably won't be able to grasp the full scope of, we can grasp a lot of it, you know, from historical context and looking back. I mean, a lot, I mean, only recently, I feel like has been a lot more interest been taken into in world war one. But, I mean, we even though we're we live over a century later, like we're still kind of living in the shadow of the consequences of that first war. Mm-hmm. Like you go from 1917, you have, um, you know, the majority of people are still using horses and buggies. Like cars are sort of kind of becoming a a common thing. But um, you go from, you know, just after the Victorian era, with that technology to now. Yeah, World like War One, World War Two, the Cold War. We have computers, you know, cell phones, supersonic jets, and different things like that. We have that. more computing power than it took to get to the moon in our pocket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is more computing power than they had just by hand. <laughs> um. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's war the how the ninth the twentieth century really shook up human history in a dramatic way, mm-hmm. in a way that is was in my opinion unprecedented i mean like because you have you know I mean, big events that happen but the, just the like, only thing that shook up human history that dramatically was the birth of jesus mm-hmm. and then sub his subsequent death right i mean that that altered the course of history in a very profound way mm-hmm. but like human instigated yeah i mean if you think <laughs> about just with the first world war and second world war alone to get back to like you know the the value of human life thing like Mm -hmm. it's estimated in um world war ii alone like over 70 million people died i can't remember let me check the estimate for um no not world war ii world war one i want world war there we go yeah, 20 million. So between World War One and World War Two, that's like, that's 100 million people over the span of about 20 years, you know, which is pretty, I mean, pretty The crazy. global population has been approximately doubling for the last mm-hmm. 20, every 25 years. Yeah. So but at the global, time, global population at the time was dramatically less than it is now. Mm-hmm. So that was a much bigger... That was like a tangible percentage of the world's and life population. And expectancy was much shorter regardless if you died in war um, back then. But but yeah, it's it's something to think about too. Like, um, well, yeah, like we've, been t- well, like we've been saying is like just because this thing, this war, this conflict happened over 100 years ago, like we, you know, we're still living in the consequences of it today. Because like, as we said, like, the consequences of World War One, then into World War Two, and then so on down to where we are today. So, it's important to 
look back through history and try to learn from it. To see how and why we got here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a very weird place. That's yeah. real. Because, yeah, if you compare that to somebody who lived between, say, 1800 and 1900, life didn't look too terribly different. I mean, you had some technological advancements, like you've got the telegraph and the phone and a few other, and like the Industrial Revolution, but... The Industrial Revolution began in like the 1780s. Right. So so it, it wasn't really that dramatic of a shift um, compared to the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So sort of long-winded, but hopefully I guess the, the point across is like the importance of history. Because mm-hmm. I think one thing I, from when I, you know, I've, I've been kind of a history buff since I was four years old, but I, uh, that's not even a joke. I, um, what I find is like a lot of people I talk to, history was like their least favorite class or they just never really understood why they should care about it. It, it was never presented in a way that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a lot of the value of movies like 1917 is that they present the war in such a way where it's not like glorifying it. It's just very, it's very matter of fact. Just this drawing is, it. Yeah. This, this is, is what, what it was. Because, I mean, war movies of like the 60s and 70s and stuff, some of them were sort of over dramatized. And the, yeah, they were focused on the heroism of World yeah, War II. There's no, I mean, there's moments of heroism, but you don't get this like adrenaline rush from the guy doing this heroic thing you're just kind of smacked in the well not so much smacked but you're just like they hold up this gruesome thing into your face and say look at it Mm -hmm. look at it yeah and you like you might squirm a little bit but like you yeah you grit your teeth and have to face the reality of it we're gonna have to do an episode on hacksaw ridge oh yeah that one's a really good one that's anyway later but yeah probably an episode coming up too um yeah, uh, let's see. What we're, on. we're on a little bit of a roll there. What was? Uh, we we just we're getting to the end of the truth segment. Yeah, <laughs> probably. So, oh yeah, what what nineteen seventeen does well is like presents history to people. So I hope I hope it's helpful in that way to get people thinking about. Because I think, like like Nate, like you were saying, Nathan, um, it just wasn't presented in a way that was interesting or grabbed your attention. But I think right. it, I'll, history I'll... needs to be made real to people because this is stuff that really happened even if this is like a somewhat fictionalized right. version of things that happened like at the at the beginning of the credits of this of 1917 it's like based on stories told by the director's one of his ancestors dad or grandpa or something mm-hmm. told him these stories and so that inspired him to make the movie right when, when it's a list of abstract names and dates and places and, and you're bad at names mm-hmm. it really just becomes unfun yeah but when it's like real situations with real people with real like ties to your actual life mm-hmm. it's like oh this makes sense why i should care about it yeah and for those of us uh, those of our listener listeners who are like similar ages us like the average age i think for both world war ii and world war one of the soldiers who fought in the war was somewhere around 22 23 so people were fighting and dying for their country like when they were our age. So they were just as real as you and I. So some something to think about. Uh, goodness. What 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 uh, what goodness does this film bring forward in the sort of bleak and dreariness of war? I think like we mentioned, just kind of these moments of rest amongst the the chaos and mm-hmm. death and disorder, just a little reprieve to mm-hmm. get your your head squared away, I think uh, especially the one where he um, finds the the French lady's little bunker, mm-hmm. and where he's just kind of playing with the baby. And she's like, nah, "I need to feed her, but I don't have anything because she can only drink milk." He's like, "I've got milk," because he, you know, they'd pass by oh, that he cow. His, his flask with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it's like a near providential little moment where, like, even in this like hellish environment, like he was able to do like a. He was, able, you know, able to provide for this little kid. Yeah. I think another, like, I think um, Blake does a really good job exemplifying the good of this movie, the, the goodness mm-hmm. of the movie. Because he's very, very optimistic in being able to save his brother and being, and he trusts in the impact his this message will have mm-hmm. in saving people. And he motivates his friend to 
also have that faith and that hope and mm -hmm. that realization of the the goodness. I think it sort of represents how, like, in a lot of war war films, especially the ones recently I've seen, where like Blake and Schofield sort of represent the two types, of, like the two people in war: those who live and those who die. And like the best ones always seem to be the ones who die. Mm -hmm. um, but then like that makes their sacrifice all the more meaningful. Um, yeah. A thought just occurred to me that Blake is kind of like the Kamina of 1917. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of his it's, attitudes and values. Listen to our Gurren Logan episode. Listen to the Gurren Logan episode. I know what we're talking the about. Heavens. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. go beat up the moon now. <laughs> I'm going there to pierce the heavens. Something, something forevermore. Um, yeah. Kind of brazen, audacious, not really thinking about the consequences. Just, mm -hmm. we got to go, man. Yeah, we gotta, we gotta we do got our, we gotta do it. Mm -hmm. Ends up dying for it, just trying to help someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did we ever talk about the reason Blake dies? He's like, oh yeah, we yeah, did. he was yeah, stabbed. He was, he was trying to, by that pilot. He was trying to save. Mm -hmm. They were trying to, yeah, they were trying to save a guy, mm -hmm. and it was sure it was a German soldier, but it's like they, they didn't really want anyone to die. Mm -hmm. It's like, or, or was, or was a uh, Schofield like we should we should kill him. Yeah, he's and like, we Blake should we like, should put no, him out of his misery. Yeah, because he was like sort of badly burnt and stuff. He's like, no, we gotta take care of him. And so, in in trying to you know perform an act of human charity, like Blake ends up being killed, you know, by this sort of ungrateful pilot they rescued. Um, but yeah, there and then uh, another thing too with with Schofield is he's like his character is very much sort of has like this the aura of sort of like survivor's guilt kind of a thing um at least like at the beginning of the movie like you know he's seen horrors and he's like i honestly don't know why i'm still alive compared to all these other people who are just as good as me and oftentimes with veterans that'll be the case for them where that's something they have to deal with is like the fact that they survived and these other people didn't um even though they were in the same situation so like the human costs of war uh, mm -hmm. uh, beauty. Well, it, we, did, I, we already talked about the presentation, and it's really mm -hmm. the presentation is really good. It's like it's only, beautiful in a very sort of somber, very melancholy, melancholy, yeah. but still like inspiring in its own way. Like the and just like the the, the craftsmanship of the the whole film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the historically accurate uniforms i mean i'm i'm not like that kind of history buff where i wasn't like micro analyzing all their uniforms to make sure that this and that the other thing was absolutely correct but you know like the presentation like the set design the um you know the the characters like the the actors were very well cast i think um yeah they did a good job um, the film as a whole wasn't particularly beautiful no. But it painted a very, like, somber, real picture that got its point across really well. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, I'm trying to think of a better word to say, but sort of like um, beauty in the way that pain is beautiful in a, in, a, in a certain light when you think about it. Because, I mean, as Catholics, you know, that's one of the things where, like, yeah, finding suffering is redemptive when it's, you know, for, you know, when you, you know when you're united to the sufferings of christ and stuff but like if you are suffering but to achieve a good end then it is worth it it is not you know useless or meaningless right doesn't doesn't add any glory to the suffering it just exposes the suffering mm -hmm. and and lets you kind of just sit in there for a bit mm -hmm. and contemplate just kind of feel it out and it's really not it's it's very somber. It's very solemn. Mm -hmm. It's very respectful, but also very real. Yeah. So I guess uh, um, recent, fairly recently we celebrated, or it was about a month ago now, but uh, Veterans Day was instituted. I think multiple countries celebrate November 11th as like Armistice Day, mm -hmm. where it was like at the end of World War One, um, but like the 11th day at the 11th hour, uh, like in the 11th month is... Uh, is when they honor the the fallen. So I guess, uh, yeah, it's good to sort of um, remember these people and the sacrifice that they gave. 
um, you know, which is sort of beauty, beautiful in that tragic kind of way. Um, not that these were necessarily, not to, you don't want to like idolize anybody, but then just sort of like from a sort of like, from a, like sort of a human standpoint, like, um, respect them for what, you know, what they went through. Um, let's see. Yeah. This, like the score of the film as well. Like it was, it, it wasn't like Hans Zimmer's soundtrack, but it did. It added to the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah the music was never in your face. It was always in the background. Everything but was, it was in very present to the moment. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It, had a it was totally to it. integrated into the moment, never overtaking it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they, they didn't emphasize the music so much because it's, that's the sort of thing that stirs up these bigger emotions. Yeah. And I, I think that's why they stayed away from. And like in other um, films, it can be taken like to glorify like the violence and things going on. Whereas like, this is very much to like kind of let the, like the horror of war take center stage and not really be, clouded by the or obscured i suppose um and the actions being performed on screen and stuff but definitely helps build tension and drives the emotional oh, impact as of the a, movie as a cinematic tool it was used quite effectively mm-hmm. and it's not it's there's a lot of moments of silence in the movie ironically um but like when there is music it is used very impactfully but yeah um Oh, uh, Unity. Yeah. We, we've talked kind of at great length about things related to the unity of this film. Yeah. All, all the pieces are in service to this grim picture of World War I, mm-hmm. life in the trenches. Mm-hmm. But also there's that recurring theme of home, mm-hmm. of, of going home after the war, the, mm-hmm. the hope of that that got people through wars like World War One and Two, and even still do to this day, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, I suppose it's appropriate, like in the season of Advent, which is supposed to be a very similar thing where like we're awaiting the coming of Christ. Like, I mean, uh, you know, in the celebration of Christmas, but then also it's like I've, in a few homilies I've listened to recently at mass and whatnot, like, you know, also like you know the second coming where we all one day go home and they send their messenger through the wilderness oh yeah it's a christmas movie oh, gosh. <laughs> i mean it is literally a christmas movie it takes place at christmas time does it yes they say that multiple times what it doesn't look like winter it's well, france because it's france in the middle they have, they of have winter in france war. they don't have snow all that much yeah, but there's cherry blossoms I'm pretty sure they said they mentioned Christmas at least. Well, being being about going, it's the no the cliche is being home for Christmas during war, but that was like an actual like. Had they just come home from being home I at think, Christmas? Is that what they were talking about? I think that might have been. It, oh, yeah. it was early spring. Yeah, that it happened. Yeah. yeah. Disregard. So, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it's uh, something to think about during this season that we are currently in. If you're listening to this, not in this season. Hello from the future. Yes. Uh, does Hello. 2020 end? <laughs> <laughs> or do we just have December 32nd and so on of 2020? Well, I guess any final thoughts? It's good. Yeah. It's good. At least the half I watched. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in watching the other half at some point. Yeah. It's good to shake up. Like, there's movies you have for entertainment and then transcendental value and certain things. But it's good to shake that up with a movie that sort of makes you think mm-hmm. in a good way. Well, we, we like movies that make us think. Oh, yes. Like right. Most of the movies we watch, unless they're... Something with solemnity and weight to it. Right. So, yeah. Um, you have your Avengers and then you have like your war films or like Passion of the Christ or something, which sort of stir different parts of your heart. That being said, um, thank you for listening. Uh, you can listen to our podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple podcasts, and Google podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, um, at Palapapists. And you can email us with your questions, comments, concerns, and complaints at palladiumpapists at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. 
appreciate you listening to the podcast. And uh, one thing I was thinking, you know, I listened to all these podcasts. You got The Crunch, you got Catching Foxes, and they just rattle off all the names of these high-profile people they know and, like, Catholic celebrity or whatever. But I was like, I was thinking the other day, like, you know what? I'm a podcast host, and I've also met these people. I've met Jason Everett. I've met Matt Fratt. I've met Dr. Tedward Shree. I've, <laughs> I've met Curtis Martin and all these cool people. We're cool like that too. So if you're that superficial and vapid and want to listen to us for those reasons, go ahead. I, I have a signed book by Dr. Shree, so oh. take that. Yeah. I, I went to a camp with Father Mike Schmitz. As a there you go. Yeah. I, I hung out with him for a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, I went to a youth rally with Chris Stefanik. You, you, you get the point. <laughs> <laughs> We're cool, too. We're cool Come like on. that. We got roped into focus. Some of us got roped into focus conferences, and that's really why all this stuff happened. But, uh, and no, it doesn't really make sense, special. But, yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> on that note, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.